We got relationship goals for real. It's episode 37 for our edification. Thank you for joining me on this episode of For Our Edification. This podcast here, this podcast here, this podcast here, personal leadership goodness. And also is brought to you by Edify Ventures, LLC, brand strategy and experiences. Go to edifyventuresnola.com to learn more. So you can also get past episodes of For Our Edification by going to eddiefrancis.com. There are some past episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. So episode 35, I had Akila Wallace on and she brought up a name of a friend of hers, Frosois Booker Drew. Well, guess who this episode's guest is? Frozois Brooker Drew. It's kind of a get to know you. So let's jump into it. The views and opinions expressed on for our edification do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the hosts, guests, or any entities with which we are affiliated. So Dr. Frozois Brooker Drew, relationships are key to personal, professional, and organizational growth. Referring to herself as a network weaver, Frozois runs Solstice Consultancy, and she's the co-founder of Heritage Giving Fund, along with Akila wallace and halima and she's also the co-founder of power in action dallas Francois has done a tedx talk and she's been quoted and featured in forbes modern luxury the huffington post and other media outlets she was featured on the documentary friendly captivity which followed seven women from dallas to india here's my conversation with Francois. joining the podcast is my friend my friend, Dr. Francois Booker Drew. So funny story about a connection that Francois and I have. You know, we we so we met through Halima and we're going back and forth and going back and forth. I find out that Francois is from Shreveport, the port city and find out she graduated from high school the same year I did, 1988. Yes. And then I find out she went to the same high school as one of my lion brothers. And I find <laughs> out she's friends with my lion brother. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really, really cool. And and Francois is somebody who I just, I value a great deal, sister. It's so good to talk to you. It's an honor to be here with you, my brother. You know you and Halima are my people. Y'all are my family. <laughs> so whenever y'all say Let's do something. I'm in. You know, one of the things I really, really love about you is I love your story. Um, and, I, and I've heard your story in different forms and all kinds of all kinds of uh, uh, opportunities. And so this is this is a different kind of interview I'm going to do than I usually do. This is going to be a really biographical interview. So first things first, for us, why, what do you do? And how did you see an opportunity to do the kind of work that you do? So let's start with what kind of work do you do? So currently I am consulting full time and I do a couple of things consulting. Um, I work with organizations to help them think about how they use their funds in communities and taking their philanthropic dollars. And I advise them on how to spend that money. Um, the other piece that I do is I work with, you know, and these are typically institutions. And then mm-hmm. I work with institutions on their community engagement strategies. So how do they really go into marginalized communities and make impact and training them and their teams to operationalize community engagement? 
And then the other piece of that is I find that I end up doing a lot of leadership development and organizational culture work, because as you're trying to do this work around changing the way you see these communities, oftentimes as a change management strategy. Mm. So you end up having to work with the leaders and coaching them on how they lead, not only internally, but how that shows up externally. So mm. it ends up being all of these um, different components of the work that initially I didn't think that I would be doing something like this. <laughs> but because of, you know, all the experience over the years it's interesting how all the stuff you do at the time you're doing it, you don't realize you're being prepared for something else yeah, that's even greater. Yeah. And so that that's kind of how I stumbled into this really unique um, niche of work. Yeah, that's so here's the thing that's so funny is that um, episode 22 of the podcast, we actually had a guest on named Robin Johnson, and she does change management work. Uh, she actually works a lot with mergers and acquisitions. And so um oh some you two have in common you're both women of the alpha kappa alpha so yes! <laughs> so how, so when it when it comes down to it how did you how did you see an opportunity to do the kind of work that you do what got you into it you know it it really started um a couple of things it started with my work at state fair texas so when I was VP of Community Affairs at State Fair, Texas, I res was responsible for our philanthropic giving. And I noticed that a lot of the organizations that we were trying to fund were not getting the support that they needed. They didn't have the um, infrastructure often. They didn't have the capacity. And it wasn't always their fault. It was often systemic issues that contribute to them not having the infrastructure and the support. Mm -hmm. And I found myself working with a lot of funders and influencing them because I didn't have a huge budget. I didn't have multi millions of dollars, yeah. but I found myself working with funders and also trying to influence them on. I need you all to think about these communities that are on the front lines doing this work. And during the pandemic, I noticed that a lot of our organizations were being placed in the front lines or on the front lines, but they weren't getting support. So they're out there doing diaper drives and risking their own health and safety to make sure our communities were taken care of, but they weren't getting the support. So I mm. was being placed in, in, in conversations to advocate and go, what you're not going to do is give mm. money to some of these other large institutions and they then benefit, but these folks who are on the ground are not getting what they need to do this work, and they're coming out of their own personal pocket to do it. That's not fair. And so it really started these conversations locally about equity and philanthropy. And so from there, we, you know, prior to that, we were doing Heritage Giving Fund, Halima, and you had Akila on the show. Mm -hmm. And yep. so that was another piece of the work that influenced you know, this idea of philanthropy. And then I wrote a book um, on philanthropy called um, Empowering Charity, a new narrative of philanthropy based on both of those experiences and really looking at a lot of the myths that we have around philanthropy um, are not rooted in data. And I saw that in my own personal experiences. And so I wanted to change the way people gave. And I think all of that really became this foundation 
for how I ended up in the space that I'm in now and, and just started getting pulled more into conversations about, we saw you do this at the fair and we saw some of these other, you know, uh, places that you've worked in and communities. How can you help us start thinking differently about the way that we do this work? So that's what I'm doing. So one of the things, and yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna remind the, you know, the the listener that uh, that we had Akila on uh, episode thirty six or thirty five, thirty five episode thirty five, we had Akila on, and um, so let's consider this an extension of Black Philanthropy Month, and so um, BPM three sixty five, um, so. <laughs> So here's the thing that, I'm, you know, because before I met Halima, I was one of those people who, when it came down to philanthropy, I was one of those people whose response was, well, isn't that something that rich people do? You know, and it was like, I, you know, I only got like 175 in my checking account. What can I do? And so um, when it comes down to it, explain why when it comes down to philanthropy, it's really important to think about philanthropy as a strategic thing as opposed to write a check because that's my favorite church write a check because i like that school write a check because it's the right thing to do so how do you see that it's multifaceted i think one it is writing a check because it is your favorite school i think mm -hmm. there's the immediate need you know, there are folks who are going to need food and clothing, and we cannot stop that immediate need work. And so I don't want people to think that we cannot address those because that's going to always be with us. I think there's also this piece of how are we doing the strategic? What does it really mean to think about this systemic change and this long-term game of really addressing these issues and not putting Band-Aids on them? What we do know is government in this country was not designed to solve for all problems. So it is going to be a partnership between nonprofits, government and business to really address these issues. And so philanthropy is going to always have a role and a seat at the table to address it. But I think we're fooling ourselves to believe that philanthropy alone is going to be able to do that. So there has to be strategy on how those dollars are going to work because they're not, you know, endless either. So mm -hmm. I think that we have to think about even in our own homes, we just don't have this unlimited supply of money. How can we make sure that we are using those funds most effectively? And part of it is thinking about policy. So a lot mm -hmm. of the issues that we are dealing with really are a result of bad policies. So when we can, you know, deal with the immediate need, give to those you know, long-term solutions, but think about how those can be changed through policy. It will free up money to really address other needs. And mm -hmm. I don't think we're having those kinds of conversations enough because I'll give you an example. So here in Texas, there is a, um, a policy on the books about folks when they've been impacted by incarceration, when they get out, it's about three years after they've been released that they can apply for occupational license. So if I want to do be a barber, I want to be a welder, mm -hmm. it's going to take me three years. So what am I doing in the meantime? They don't have three years. Thank you. 
So, so this they is the issue. They barely, they barely Bingo. have three days. Bingo. And so this wow. is the problem. And it was longer than that. It came down to three years. That's a policy issue. So then what you do is you've got people who are going to go right back to that system because they cannot live on McDonald's. No disrespect. Yeah. But they're not going to be able to take care of their families. Whereas mm -hmm. entrepreneurship, we know, is going to be the way for many of our folks who have been impacted by incarceration. So mm -hmm. we can holler and give money to all of these programs. But until that policy issue is addressed, folks are still going to be in that situation. So then how do we begin to start looking at, from a strategy standpoint, looking at public policy and advocacy as a component of philanthropy? They got to go mm. hand in hand. Mm. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, so that, that's, that's, um, so I may be the person, all I got is my $50 to give, but if I, if I can do something to, um, contribute to some sort of issue that I know is really, you know, being troublesome to, I don't know, let's say my alma mater, Tennessee state, my, my master's alma mater. So something is troublesome to Tennessee state. All I got is $50 I give, but if I can do, if I can donate my time somehow, or if I can oh, yeah. donate my talent yeah. and it, and if, and if I tell somebody from the Tennessee state alumni association, like, Hey, listen, there's a well, actually, Tennessee State is involved in a really big issue right now where they're going to the Tennessee state government saying, give us the money you owe us. And so me knowing PR, if I go to somebody in the Tennessee State Alumni Association and say, you know what, I know exactly how to bring this issue to the media and how da, 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 could I be considered using oh, some philanthropic muscle? Yeah. But that's a philanthropist. I mean, it's it's mm -hmm. the it's the not only the tithe or the treasure that most yeah. people think is philanthropy. And I, I was like you, I thought it was for rich people, but it yeah. is the talent. I mean, it's the skill-based volunteering. There's a platform that's called Catch a Fire that was designed yeah. mm -hmm. you know, for folks to do that skill-based volunteering. I find that so many of our nonprofits in our community, people are always going, they need money. And I'm often saying, when you really dig down to it, it's not just money they need. It's oftentimes they're paying for certain skills or materials. Yeah. So yeah. it's the marketing collateral that if someone could come in and help them do that, or it's the strategic planning, or you're in accounting and you can do forecasting and helping them think about their budgets, or you're in real estate and you can help them think about, you know, acquisition of property or facility management. How do you make sure that you have a plan to make sure that, you know, you've got money in the budget in case something happens to your physical plant. Those are kinds of things that are very valuable as well, sometimes even more so for mm -hmm. many of our agencies. So it's a time, it's a talent, you know, and, and even the testimony, because mm. I don't think people see that your stories have power. So how do you talk about some of the challenges that you've had and how people have helped you through it and the difference it's made in your life, how that can help someone? Are you going to a nonprofit and, you know, holding babies and talking to a teen mom and explaining that that may have been your situation and where you are now and you're giving people hope and giving them a pathway on how to get out of it through your mentoring and your coaching and sponsorship. So I think that there are ways that we can do mentoring or philanthropy, excuse me, that are bigger than what we typically um, consider philanthropy to be. And I think the other piece is we do it every single day. 
and don't even realize that we are philanthropists in all these different aspects of our lives. We just don't call it out because we've been accustomed to thinking it's the Eli Lilly and, and it's the Kellogg's and it's the Rockefellers who are the philanthropists, but it's the Eddie Francis's and the Booker Drew's and the Pinkness and all these other people in our communities who are the philanthropists as well. Hmm. So what gets you out of bed at night? What keeps you awake at night? Oh, wow. Um, it's a lot of things. <laughs> I think for I think for me, it is um, the concern of the disconnect intergenerationally. Mm. I think that is oh, wow. really that that is a concern for me. Mm -hmm. I am watching a lot of young people who are craving mentorship. And there is a disconnect between generations and being able to provide wisdom and guidance. I think somewhere along the way, we forgot what it was like to be young. Yep. And I think yep. we, we penalize young people and we look at how they dress and we look at the yep. dances. And, and yes, some of it is some conversation pieces. I get it. But I have to remember when I was a teenager, I listened to Prince. <laughs> My mother <laughs> thought Prince was one of the most vulgar people. And with, evil people. And... Yes. Had the little bikini on in yeah. the shower with the coat. I had yeah. that poster and I was like, I'm going to marry that man. You know, <laughs> and, and so I remember those things yeah. as a young child and a young woman. And if I grew into who I am, and it's not that I'm perfect, but if I've evolved and grown up, why can't we give grace and space to young people doing that, but walk with them instead of criticize them? And I think for me, I'm seeing so much criticism of young people or folks who are older who just don't have grace for them, but we want grace. And so much of what they've learned is from us and yet we mm -hmm. criticize it. And so I think that's one of the things that I am recognizing. And it just it's disturbing to me to see, especially in our community, how we're beating each other up instead of creating these safe communities uh, where people can be safe and, and receive the love. We are all traumatized. So why are we recreating spaces yeah. of trauma when you got to yeah. deal with that in the greater world? And then we're going to come and do it to each other. That's a problem. And, and, and so one thing I want to do, I, I want to pause really quickly for the listener. And I want to encourage you to listen to episode 35, episode 35 with Akilah Wallace, um, who, you know, the, the main engine behind Heritage. Yes. Uh, but then also there are a couple of episodes I, where I had a conversation with Halima, episodes 27 and 28 and and. You know, those were great episodes where she talked about there being no shame in the struggle. So I want you to, if you're listening to this, listen to Francois, listen to Akila, listen to uh, Halima, and you will understand why Heritage is such a great organization. <laughs> and you see these sisters like all on the same page. It's, it's, it's eerie listening to you, Akila, and Halima, <laughs> and how y'all are just on the same wavelength. Um, and and uh, and to see it was to see what you're doing. So let me ask you this. Okay, so I don't know what you just talked about. Um, how you need to see more intergenerational relationships. 
Is that something that both keeps you up and gets you out of bed? Are you also both. excited about the possibility of being able to teach somebody younger than you and learn from somebody older than you at the same time? It's all of that. I, you know, one of the things that um, I have been intentional about is is both mentoring and sponsorship. I am really big on trying to open doors for young people because I remember what it was like in my career very early where I did not have people who would take the time to talk to me. And I was talking to a young sister yesterday who is a very known professional here. And she was telling me about someone in her industry who she looked up to who has been bad mouthing her. And she only wanted this person to embrace her. And I was like, that's so sad when I see older people who are jealous and threatened by younger people, when you should be able to know that there is no competition. There is enough room for all of us. And quite frankly, even if people tried to be you, nobody could ever be you and do what you do anyway, the way that you yeah. do it. So that that's always bothersome to me. And, and I wanted to, you know, one, affirm her, and I did, but to be able to say that we need more spaces where young people can have access to folks who can tell their story and help them understand the journey. But this is the other piece that I've also recognized. My journey will not be like yours because they're variables that are so different in our experiences. And I tell young people that I didn't have internet. That would have totally changed the person that I am if I grew up with an Instagram. I don't think I'd probably <laughs> be who I am. And I, that's another conversation. I, I think it would have shaped me for a lot of reasons. I, I don't think I'd be who I am, but I do think that that shapes you. And without having that variable, um, yeah. I can't say that your journey will be like mine, but there are some principles and things that I can share with you about integrity and character and, and, and things like that. But I think it's important for us to make sure that we're creating community for these younger people. And I am excited to be able to do that and be a sponsor and be a mentor. And, you know, for me, it's even important to do that for some of our brothers, because I hear a lot of black men tell me younger black men, they don't have spaces like that, especially in the nonprofit space. There are no spaces for older black men um, to come and mentor them because they won't do it. And that is so worrisome to me that you have institutional knowledge that is going to die in our community that will go in the ground and we're going to spend 20, 30 years trying to figure out what people were doing because they didn't mentor. Yeah. Yeah. So you did, you had the, you had the opportunity to do a TEDx. Um, it yeah. was TEDx SMU, right? If I yeah. remember. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. What did you, what did you talk about? My love, social capital. Yay. You know, I love, you know, I love all of this is about social capital. If you notice it's a common thread is relationships. So, I, so I really love all, that. So let's, so let's define. So, because, so let me tell you, what was really funny. One day I was um, in a meeting <laughs> at an institution of higher learning and I said the word social capital and somebody started laughing and I said, well, what's so funny. And they said, oh, that's just, that's, that's a cool term, social capital. I was like, no, that's a thing. That's an actual thing. And so I was really surprised 
to hear somebody not even know the term and what it meant. It was it was really a very new term to this person. So what is social capital? So social capital is really about networks, association, it's relationships, just as you have financial capital that you use to be able to purchase things, you have uh, influence and ability to move the needle with your relationships. And there are different types of social capital. There is one that's called bonding, which is connecting to people that are just like you. There is bridging, where you connect to people that are not like you, but can be different, not just because of race, but even ideology. But there are these other forms that are called like reputational capital, that somebody actually is able to influence people just because of their reputation. There is another one that's called informational capital, where someone is very powerful because they hold all this information and people go to them to be able to get access to information. So we don't recognize in our community how powerful these types of relationships are and that oftentimes they are more powerful than money because having the relationships can get you the access to the money. And I usually tell my nonprofits, you don't have a money problem. You got a people problem. When you get connected Mm. to the right people, you won't have a money problem. One of the things I'm interested though in is the bridging one. So bridging, I imagine bridging, especially in this political climate can be very difficult. But I also imagine that somebody who's good at bridging is extraordinarily valuable oh, no matter yes. where they go. How do you handle it, though, when you have someone who has a different ideology, you just can't even begin to agree with their ideology, yet you have a relationship with this person and you want to do your very best to help the, 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 you know, you want to do your very best to help the populace, right? You, like you really want to do what's right for people, but you have this person on the other side. I don't understand how politicians do this, you know, especially the ones who are able to work across the aisle. How do you, how do you really make bridging work to benefit other people? How is that social capital leveraged? <laughs> I think it's hard when you're dealing with people that are very fundamentalist who are extremists Mm. and and their way of thinking. That's a very different situation because you're dealing with... that cuts out a lot of gray areas. It does. You don't have that middle ground. No. And and it's hard to negotiate when people are so at polar opposite ends of their thinking. That's not to say that you can't. I think what you have to do is find commonalities with people. I believe at the core of every human being, people want to feel heard. They want to feel like they're valued, that they want to, you know, matter. And I think that you have to lead with that when you're trying to deal with very difficult conversations and difficult people. I think you have to, you know, realize that folks want the best for their families. I don't know, you know, very many people who go, I don't want my family to eat. I'm very happy with my family just struggling and suffering. That's great for me. No one's going to say that. So there's some fundamental things that people want. And I think that's how you lead with. Uh, There is this term that um, I'm starting to learn more about. And it's, um, God, it's universalist and it's escaping me. But the basic term is, in essence, it is the greater good solving for these issues for the greater good. But then it's targeted universalism. That's what it's called. Hmm. And basically what it is, is we want... this one goal 
but we recognize that it's going to take different efforts for different populations. And I think that that's the approach that we're going to have to take when we're having these difficult conversations is recognizing what is the overarching goal that we want, but then seeing that if I want students to achieve in school and everybody to have access to education, the treatment that I may apply for Black students may be different in order to reach this goal. Doesn't mean that we're not going to have white students get what they need. It's that we're going to have to do different things to make sure that students have access. And so I, I think it's going to really be focusing on those things that matter and really thinking about what are the commonalities and what's the goal we're solving for. I think sometimes we get so caught up in majoring in the minors that we end up getting so distracted by the foolishness that we can't solve for the real issue that we're trying to address. And that's why we have all the polarization that you see is that people want to be right all the time without thinking about, you know, what's the greater good. So you're right, but what has that solved? Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that amazing how people will fight like hell to be dead wrong about something, <laughs> but, but they, but they're fighting to be right, but they're dead wrong. Yes. And you're just sitting there going, it's, it's like, you, I, what are we fighting for? What What's the fight here? And, and you find out that, and I really do believe this. And I mean, people have heard me talk about this before in past episodes. Um, there is literature that suggests that narcissism is an actual epidemic. Right? Oh, I, like, I would not doubt yeah, that. I mean, there's literature. And and unfortunately, what we have is we have this world. And it's hard for social capital to flourish, I imagine, in an environment where there's a wealth of self-interest. Um, but that's what your country has been built on. I mean, when you think about it, you have a country yeah. that was built on manifest destiny and it was built on this ideal of individualism. So then why are we surprised when everybody is trying to get the, the, the house and the car and the American dream and the three, you know, 0.5 kids? Why are we surprised? Yeah. Yeah. And then everybody's, you know, everybody's just scrambling for whatever crumbs they can get when there's a whole cake over here. Thank you. It's, you know. <laughs> So um, one of your services is leadership uh, coaching. I, 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 I'm dying to hear about this. One of your services is leadership coaching and training. Um, so what do you often find uh, with the leaders that you've worked with? Where do you find that they often need development? And, and where do you find that they often have their strengths in, in your experiences? I think a lot of leaders think that they are um, not competent to do what they do. I think a mm. lot of people feel like, you know, the, the term of the imposter syndrome. And there was this amazing article that I use often that was in the Harvard Business Review that challenges that ideology. That quite mm. frankly, it's not that you're an imposter. It's a system that has been created to make you think that there's something wrong with you. So Again, a, a system built on self-interest. Yeah, yes. And so, <laughs> so why would yeah. you walk in a place and go, I don't fit here? And you know what I mean? And so how do we begin to start creating spaces for people to come to work in the totality of who they are and allow people with their faults and mistakes and all of that show up? And we work with them to be able to, you know, complete a goal and a task. Mm -hmm. And it's helping folks to understand that in all of who they are, you're fine. There are things that we can all improve upon. And so this ideal of being an imposter 
in my mind, undermines who you are because you're looking at yourself as if, you know, I can't do this. Well, you can. You just may need some support to do it and it's recognizing your own gifts and talents. And then how do you surround yourself with a team that can help you do this work? But if you feel like you're an imposter, what happens then is you typically are trying to control everything because you don't want anybody to know that you don't know what you're doing. Well, what would it look like if you were free enough to say, I don't know, but Mm -hmm. I need you to help me. So how do we build this team to do something magical? That's the thing that I find. But you need to be in a truly how you need to be in a space of people who are truly committed. It sounds like to teamwork. And yeah. And it sounds like you need to as a leader. It sounds like with the leaders you've worked with, it it really would have been helpful for them. And I'm and I'm sure at least somebody you've worked with was able to benefit from this. It sounds like with the leaders you work with, they, they needed to be in a space where people managed up enough to say, hey, we got you. You know, we, we got you. We all going to get through. We either going to we all going to succeed together and fail together. We're going to do one of those two. Yes. But we got you. Well, <laughs> we got and- you. And and this is the thing, many of the folks I have worked with are actually like the founders of organizations. So they set the culture. So the goal was, if you feel like this and you started this, you got to know what your employees are feeling like because they feel your, you know, insecurity. So now you're controlling everything and you don't trust everybody. So we've got to get you to stop feeling like you don't belong here. We've got to get you to begin to understand that, yes, this may be a vision of yours and you may have aspirations to do this work. You don't know everything about this work. How do you get the support and help that you need and begin to start working on those areas that you need development in and stop feeling like I've got to hide who I am? Because in doing that, you undermine this work. And so that's what many of them as as the founders of many of these organizations that's been the challenge that I've seen for a lot of them, because you're talking about people who have passion, but who may not always have the experience or the business acumen who come in and, you know, have all of these skills to, to develop these organizations. And keep this in mind, you start off with an organization that was small and then in a year or two, this thing may blow up. And now all of a sudden you've got this budget that has grown and now you've got a team and you haven't had the ability to catch up personally with this professional growth. When I work with company leaders, it's then really thinking about what is the existing culture and really thinking about one, do you have the influence and ability to impact what that looks like? And if we can, how can we coach up? If there is not the opportunity to coach up, what does that look like then with your own team and how do you support your own team and being able to to do this work? For me, it's making sure that leaders are not creating more trauma and harm to the people that they're supervising. That's the thing that I'm always trying to make sure that, that leaders are healthy in the way that they see themselves, but also being able to look at the talents and gifts of their teams and not seeing people as competitors or threats or people that they have to um, get in check. Because Mm -hmm. if you see people that way, you're creating an environment that's so toxic. How do we help people stop having this toxic way of leading and really beginning to see 
their teams as contributing and people that have all of this wealth of information they bring to the table. And your job is to coach. Your job is to set vision. Your job is not to come in and punish and dominate over people. And that's yeah. changing mindsets. So there's an interesting theme that's come up when I mm. when I've when I've talked and, and really heard about leadership lately. Um, and literally it's been like within the past week. Um, so one of my favorite podcasts is HBR um, Idea Cast. Um, mm -hmm. I, I love HBR. You brought up Harvard Business Review. I love Harvard yeah. Business Review. I did um, I also do, I do another podcast called I Want to Work There. And I recently spoke to um, a communications uh, pro named Teresa Valerio Parrott. And she works a lot with college presidents. The theme that's come up, and I'm hearing it with you. You haven't said the word, but I'm hearing that vulnerability yes. is very important for it leadership. Is. Um, and the interesting thing about the HBR podcast I was listening to is it, it was actually a conversation about authentic leadership yes. and what that looks like. Yes. And the person who, and I can't remember her name, but she was, she was arguing that in order to be more authentic, you had to get to a point of vulnerability. Yeah, you do. It's it, reflection. It's, yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's really, that's, that's new. That's new oh. talk for leadership. <laughs> oh, yeah, because leadership initially was to dominate and to control. Yeah, it was, it was a hand on the hip and, you know, yeah. the Superman case. And to <laughs> tell you what yeah. to do, and that hasn't worked. But yeah. part, part of what leadership has to do is what you're saying. It is about the, the vulnerability and the authenticity, and reflection has to be a huge part of that. Leaders have to be able to have opportunities for course correction quickly. And I don't mm -hmm. think we embed that in leadership where we are, you know, we always wait for the 360 valuation. Well, that's problematic. Then you got to wait a year to see what's wrong. And then yeah. we don't pay attention to power dynamics, even with stuff like that. I'm really going to tell my boss what's wrong with them. Yeah. yeah I was about to say, you got to have just the right kind of organization yeah, to pull off a of Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, everybody uh, can't do that. Everybody can't do that. And so it's like, really, we're, we're not going to take power dynamics into account. There, there are a lot of things that I look at companies and what they're doing. And it's like you're causing more harm than you really are. And you think you're solving for issues. Mm -hmm. It's how do we make sure that there are opportunities throughout the process for course correction, for feedback, mm -hmm. for growth. And I don't think we do that. I think so often we're only focused on folks producing and we're not really focused on how do we help people grow into the best version of themselves. When they do that, they're going to be the best employee that you got. Mm, mm. So I got, so I got, I'm always curious when, whenever I hear people talk about their lives and I hear them talk about their work and, and I've become so much more curious about this lately. And I guess it's because I've been on this journey myself lately. Um, so I'm always curious and I'm really curious with you because, you know, you are, you are so knowledgeable, you're so skilled, you're so talented, you have okay, so much yeah. experience. So how has the work that you do, how has it helped you grow personally? What have you been learning? I have learned that in the beginning of my career, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> That's what I've learned. I've learned that I probably damaged some people and um, probably didn't do a lot of things right. That's what I, I've learned. It's something to get to an age where you're able to look back on some things and start going, uh, I could have done that very differently. Hmm. Yeah. If I knew then what I know now, 
hmm, that could have looked a <laughs> lot differently. You know, yeah. I, I've learned that time is a, a friend if you allow it to be. And, and so I think that there is this wonderful opportunity that time gives. And I say this to young people all the time. They're like, I want to do this. And I'm like, some things you will never do because you just haven't been here long enough. It yeah. requires time to be able to just have some of these life experiences and to have the uh, ability to sit back and go, this is what I would have done differently. And so I, I look at... Um, throughout my journey that there are some things that I, I probably could have done a lot differently. And it's because I didn't know, I don't beat myself up about it. I just didn't know any better. Yeah. And it's been yeah. this process of one, surrounding myself by, with people who are smarter than me. Mm. I have had mm -hmm. to be okay with being the dumbest person in the room. <laughs> Seriously. So again, again, that's where the vulnerability comes in, doesn't it? I, I mean, just had to like, be okay. I, I had to. I was the same way. I, at some point, I had to say, this person knows way more about this than I do. And they're younger than I am. And they shut up. And be okay with it and not feel yeah. like I've got to impress them by yeah. saying something, you know, and, and going, well, I know a bigger word, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> What's that? You know, and, and I see people doing that and it's like, and what, what did yeah, that prove? Yeah. And so it, I had to learn that it is okay to not know everything and release yeah. that, release the desire of control because you cannot control time. You cannot control people. Release that. And I think when you begin to start recognizing the little that you do have power to deal with and influence, the more freeing your life actually is. Yeah. The more you try to control all of this stuff, you will run yourself into an early grave trying to control and, and make things happen. And from a biblical standpoint, God has been dealing with me on this word of striving because when I was young, I wanted to make all this stuff happen. I was like, I got to do <laughs> yeah. it. I got to get by 30. I got to have a house and a car. And and what I have learned is. Oh, wait, you didn't you didn't do the millionaire by 30. No, I, I knew I, I was going in social services, really. <laughs> I just wanted to be able not to ask my parents for money. That was my goal was not to be rich. Okay. You, you weren't in that crew. I was no, in the, I was no. in the, you, you got to be a millionaire by no, 30. If you're not no. a millionaire by 30, you ain't doing it right. No. no, I knew I just need to not ask my parents for money. That was achievement because I was going to help people, you know, so I knew I was not going to be rich, but that was, that was not the, that was not the goal, you know, but, but I, I've, I've recognized over, over the, the, the years that, um, you you strive for all of this stuff and you miss out on living and 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 so you look back and you're like i did all this stuff and nothing wrong with that but when you are striving you leave out room for life and you leave out room for god because at that point you're trying to play god and make all this stuff happen and what I'm learning this season of my life is there's nothing wrong with having a plan. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but right, I'm saying right, that right. you should have space for life to happen. Cause that's when, when 
the serendipitous things start to occur where you look up and go, I would have never expected to be in this room with this person. Had I planned all of this stuff out, I would have been too busy for, for these kinds of opportunities. And that's what I'm starting to realize is let go, enjoy mm. the pad and create space for those kinds of moments to happen because that's when the divine comes in, when you're not trying to control and make everything come to, come to fruition. If people want to find out more about you, how can they get in touch with you or how can they find out more about you? You know, I grew up and got on Instagram because young folks started telling me that that uh -oh. I was old, you know. And so I said, let me get on Instagram. So I am on Instagram. Wait a minute. Is, it, is, is this your daughter's work, by the way? Yeah. My is this daughter. <laughs> yeah. You know, my daughter works for me. And so my daughter does my social media and all that. And so she... She made me get on Instagram and I was like, really, I have to do this? Okay. So so I am on Instagram at Dr. Francois. Um, I am on Twitter sometimes or X as it is now known as. I don't use it a X lot. Twitter. I don't bird, use, bird, yeah, I don't really do it a lot. I won't get on my yeah. soapbox of how I feel about that. Um, yeah. I am on, on Facebook. Um, Frostwa Booker Drew, and then I, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn because I love LinkedIn. Yes. Um, yes, and I post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn too. So between Facebook and LinkedIn is where you find me, and then my website is drfrostwabooker.com, and so it's easy to find me. And Eddie can tell you I am responsive. Yes, yes, you are. Yes, I you am. are, and it is much appreciated. And sister, thank you so much for joining me on for our edification. Thank you for having me. So many thanks to Dr. Froswell Brooker Drew for joining me on this episode of For Our Edification. If you want to find out more about her, you can go to the show notes and all the links are right there. And also, you can get past episodes of For Our Edification by going to eddiefrancis.com. Also, some past episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, I'm asking you to do only three things. Download, give feedback, and share. I'm Eddie Francis for Dr. Honey Malik Francis. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of For Our Edification.